0: We're continuing in the book of Acts in chapter 19. Um, I will be reading verses 8 through 23 and um, commenting on mostly beginning at verse 13 and wishing I had not included verses 8 through 12, but there they are. But then when you wish you, shouldn't, you hadn't included something, that means that you need to because it's still the Word of God, right? Okay, so you'll, you'll understand as I go through. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even the handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. See, that's the part that made me uncomfortable, Uh, but we'll get to it later. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command that you come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, "'Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you?' Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor.'" Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia at Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers in related trades, and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout all the provinces of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Now, as someone up here in the front indicated, uh, there are a few funny little vignettes in this passage. Um, Especially if you lived in the same, you know, if you're about my age or maybe a little older, maybe a little younger, you remember um, back in 1988 in the vice presidential debate when Benson said to Quayle, I know Jack Kennedy, I'm friends with Jack Kennedy, and you are no Jack Kennedy. I mean, I can't help but think of that when I see we know Jesus and we've heard of Paul, but who are you? And then, and maybe your sense of humor isn't the same as mine, but I'm going to continue nonetheless. And then if, if you were, if you were, you know, alive in 1974, which some of you were, and some of you might have heard the song after, you might wonder if there was a woman standing there with her husband as these men came out of the house naked and bloody, uh, uh, the woman's name was Ethel. And the husband said, don't look, Ethel. <laughs> that one you get. They called him the streak. And then I love verse 23. There was all this commotion, but most of the people there had no clue why they were there. Isn't that the way it is sometimes? But as funny as we might like to think this was, for those who were there, this was not funny at all. In fact, they were so convicted by... These people who were unable to send out the demon, so convicted by the need to know Jesus and the falsity of all those other gods and all those other attempts at finding God, that they burned 50,000 drachmas worth of stuff. Now, that's 50,000 drachmas, you know, that's what? Uh, it's, it's about four or five million dollars worth of stuff, according to the calculations that I read. Because they realized that it is really foolish no matter how much you've invested in something to continue to invest in it or to allow someone else to buy it if it's going to lead to destruction. What they realized was they needed to know the one true God and that knowing was through Jesus Christ. In Matthew 7, 21-23, we find what I believe is one of the most convicting passages of Scripture, and you've probably heard it before, where Jesus himself says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name proclaim many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a convicting thought. We claim Jesus, but does Jesus claim us? What does it mean to really give ourselves to Jesus Christ? What does it mean to really know him? And that's one of the key words, of course, is to know him. The sons of Sceva didn't know him. They knew the name. They used the name. Just like the people in Matthew 7, they used the name, but they don't know the Lord. And that's what is so important for us to do, is to know the Lord, This passage in, in both these accounts tells about the importance of not putting anything before God. The sons of Sceva put their ambition to cast out demons before knowing God. And then Demetrius Demetrius put his desire to make money ahead of God. Sceva was trying to, the sons of Sceva were trying to use God for gain. Which reminds us of the story in Acts 8 of Simon the Sorcerer, who became a real Christian, but was following the, the apostles around and seeing that when they laid their hands on people and prayed for them, they received the Holy Spirit. And Simon, being used to his old ways, said, um, how much how much? How much can I pay? Uh, for me to be able to lay my hands on people and have them receive the Holy Spirit. And the apostles were not pleased with this question. They said, you need to get yourself straightened out because that is not the way this works. We do not use God for gain. We don't equate God and money. There's a story in the news this week about Benny Hinn. I don't know if any of you know Benny Hinn, a very flamboyant, preacher. I thought he was in Florida, but I guess he's in Texas, uh, where most of them are. No, that's not fair. Um, (laughs) And Benny Hinn used to have what he'd call seed money, and he'd say, now if you put a thousand dollars in an envelope and send it to me, along with your prayers, my wife and I will put those prayers out, and we will pray for that, uh, for whatever it is your request was, and God will answer because of your faith that you put into that $1,000 that you put into this envelope. This week he says, that's probably wrong. Good job. Um, Now, of course it's wrong, it's ridiculous. Uh, But so much of what prosperity preachers preach is ridiculous. It's, it's totally twisting the gospel so that instead of the human heart longing for God, which is what the human heart truly does, whether we realize it or not, they allow the things of this world to be what we long for and say that God's job then is to provide those things. Provide success in whatever it is we want to have success in. Provide financial resources. Give us good, strong, healthy, wonderful families that everyone says, oh, what a good, strong, wonderful, healthy family. And we say, that's what God's job is, to help me get what I want. And God says, no, it is not. But because that's what people want to hear, they want God to be a vending machine that you put in, well, $1,000 dollars, or hopefully a little less, and get what you want. But that is not who God is. God is God. And God is the one to whom we owe our very lives. And God is the one who promises us life. Everlasting, wonderful, abundant life. Not based in things, but based in God himself. So the sons of Sceva and some people we know today are using God for gain. Others are spurning God for gain. Demetrius says, don't believe this guy. Don't believe this thing that, that would undermine our, our livelihood. We, we make a lot of money on these artifacts, these idols to Diana or or Artemis, same person, same God and has this long speech that's recorded here about how Paul is undermining their whole culture, their whole national identity, the whole sense of who they are as a city because they are the city of Diana, the city of Artemis the city that has includes her temple and if they don't have that they will have nothing and Paul is, is threatening Paul's message is threatening all of this And he says, you know, we we made fun of a couple things in the beginning of the passage. We can laugh at uh, streakers and, and, um, and knowing Jack Kennedy or whatever. But the funniest line in this whole passage is right here. From Demetrius himself, who says, Paul says, that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. And he says it with a straight face, he says it without any sense of irony, he says it as if it's the truth that gods that are made by human hands are gods. And how ridiculous, he says, to say that they're not. But it doesn't take two seconds of rational thought to say gods made by human hands, how can they be gods? How could they possibly have any power if there's no power other than the hands that created them put into them and it reminds me of a passage in Isaiah chapter 44 this is what the Lord says Israel's King and Redeemer the Lord Almighty I am the first and the last apart from me there is no God I'm gonna skip a bit do not all who make idols are nothing and the the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The carpenter measures with a line and marks out an outline with a marker. He roughly he roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses and shapes the human form human form in all its glory that it may dwell in a shrine. He cuts down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak and let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine in the rain and made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in a fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and then eats his full. He also warms himself and says, I am warm in the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. So the same wood that's used for heat and for cooking is used to make a god. And the idol maker believes that this god somehow has power somehow can change his destiny it's foolishness and we say look at those those that greek and roman culture and all the gods that they had how how foolish they made up gods. And they said, these are the gods that we worship. Gods, you know, some of them for love. So we pray to this God if we want to receive love. And we pray to this God if we want good uh, yield in our, in our crops this year. We pray to this God if we want good financial success. We pray to this God for um, whatever it might be. And we say, that's so silly. But one preacher said, What they're doing is no different from what we do. We don't attach the name of a God to our pursuit of financial success. We don't attach the name of a God to our pursuit of romance. We don't attach the name of a God to our pursuit of success. But we do the same thing. We do exactly the same thing by putting those things ahead of God. And many of those things are good. We think that sinning is the bad things we do. And indeed, yes. But sinning is also anything that we do that puts something else in front of God. God's place is as Lord as the one to whom we owe everything. And it is only when we establish and maintain that relationship of God as God and our only true and eternal hope that we will find any satisfaction ultimately in him. And yet, we continue to look to these other things, to our appearance, which some of you You're doing pretty well. We put it in our careers, or how much money we have. And most often we put it into our appearance compared to someone else, or how much money we have compared to someone else, or our career compared to someone else, because we somehow want to think of ourselves as better or more deserving, Uh, than someone else? Utter foolishness. What does it gain? What does it get us? Tim Keller uh, speaks about Ernest Becker's book, The Denial of Death, another reference back to the 70s. And in this book, which which won the Pulitzer Prize, Becker said, the problem is, and Becker is not a believer, but he said he recognized that without something outside of ourselves, something outside of our own experience or outside of our self, it's the best way to put it, stop trying to come up with better terms. We're lost. So we try to find something to Fill the, ga- the gaping hole in our souls and we, we try to fill it with a number of things and well, the thing, one of the things he points out that, is, that has captivated the culture that says no to God is romantic love and you can watch so many movies on more than just one network <laughs> you know what I'm talking about that tell you this story over and over again. You can listen to so many songs that tell you this story over and over again. I will be fulfilled when I finally find the one. And then you find one. It's not as fulfilling as you think, so you say, well, that must not be the one. But that's not the point. Because, as Becker says, you will, if you find someone and you expect them to fulfill all the needs that you think they should fulfill, you will crush them under your expectations. And they will crush you under their imperfections. Another person cannot be what you need. Your career cannot be what you need think from the 70s and that focus on relationships and today focusing on experiences, be they physical experiences or whatever else, we think that's going to do it. The sexualization of our culture is one example of this. We think that that's the be-all and end-all because there's a sense of fulfillment in that that we don't get elsewhere. So we think that must be it. But all of these things simply point to what truly is it, which is God, and a relationship with God. Tim Keller says, idols have great power. Because when we give ourselves to these idols, it changes our lives. We devote so much energy to achieving what we think will make us feel right, will make us feel good. We give so much time and attention to them and they also have great power to destroy us. Now, one of the hardest ones to talk about is the idol of family, because within the church, we know that excessive looking at career is wrong. We know that excessive um, compulsion with money is wrong. We know that looking at sex is the ultimate fulfillment, is wrong, but family is an idol that has almost been accepted by the church, almost been lifted up to a level that says it's okay to value family like this. The problem is, if you put all your hope in your family and one of your kids doesn't turn out the way you thought, or one of your kids has a vision and a dream that's different from what your vision and dream for them might be, then your heart crumbles. All this hope and expectation is not met. And you destroy them in the process, possibly, by letting them think that they are not valued because they are not who you wanted them to be. Or there's the other side of all of these. There's, we put our hope in these things and they don't fulfill. We don't, we're don't. we not successful compared to someone else, so we feel bad and the idol has destroyed us. But the idol can also destroy when we think we've got it made, when we think we've, our family is better than so-and-so's family, our career is better than so-and-so's career, whatever else it might be is better, so we're okay. Utter foolishness. Because it is, they are, those things are not the measure of your value. Your, the measure of your value is that you are created in the image of God, and God desires to adopt you as his daughter or his son. God desires to be in relationship with you. That is your value, and that is a glorious value to have. Why do we look to anything else? idols have that power but really idols have no power we put all this hope in them and yet they don't deliver because there's no power within them you create something you carve something you say this is my god this is my idol this is what's going to do it for me it's just a carving it doesn't exist outside of the energy that you've put into it God exists Outside of you and God by his magnificent grace wants to have a relationship with you It is glorious. It is wonderful. Let's not put anything else in that place Rest in the completed work of Jesus know that God has received you, God has accepted you, and then cultivate that relationship. It's not like you can say, oh, loving Jesus is what's going to make me feel good, so I'm going to start loving Jesus. I'm going to love Jesus harder. I'm going to love Jesus more. That doesn't really get you there. But reflecting on what Jesus has already done for you, living in that confidence of what he has done, that brings help. That brings hope that brings contentment and peace and purpose. So in closing, I'll use the words of John in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Amen.